This morning we are going to wrap up this great series, but I do want to say two things. Number one, Mark Williams and Mike Van Fleet, happy birthday, guys. Right? It's your birthday. So Mark is 76 years old today, and, uh, and, uh, and Mike is 36, right? Yes. Right. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Sorry, Mark. I just, I had to throw you under the bus. It was an opportunity. I took it. Okay. Uh, he lives under the bus with my dad. That is exactly the case. So, awesome. Well, guys, this morning we're going to wrap up this series, uh, Paul, Women, and Wives, the Role of Women in Ministry. And we're going to do that by looking at three really important ideas. The first idea that we're going to look at is the necessity of looking at Scripture through what is called a collectivist lens. Now, there's going to be a lot of pushback on this inside of our minds and in our hearts because, sadly, what we have done with this is we have, um, we have read the, the ideas backwards in history. So there was a time when people operated based on a tribe, based on a community, based on a collectivist lens. And what we do when we resist this is we read our modern politics into that and we say, watch it, Nathan, we don't want to hear anything about it. And the problem is, well, you, <laughs> the problem is you're reading it backwards, right? The, the problem is you're resisting things because you're allowing modern filters to disrupt what the understanding of collectivism is really about. So we're going to look at the scripture through this collectivist lens. This is in contrast to the individualistic lens that we pride ourselves, that we're accustomed to, especially as Westerners. Now, after we go through that perspective, we're going to look at the role of deacons, both within the biblical text and within the first few hundred years of church history. Um, this is going to help us to see how others interpreted the Bible when when they first received these ancient scriptures. Finally, we're going to look at a better understanding of that universal call uh, to Christians to submit one to another. My term or my phrase to you guys has been for, for many years, all y'all submit to all y'all, right? So that is our principle, but we're going to understand that a little bit better. And we're going to understand it better because we're going to filter it through that first principle, that collectivist filter. This is going to help us uh, also with our role of elder and deacon, men and women uh, in ministry. We're going to see it with a lot more clarity because we're going to read it the way people wrote it. We're going to read it the way the, um, the authors intended it. So the first thing that we're looking at, again, is the collectivism of the Scripture. As Westerners, living uh, mainly in our individualistic culture, we read the text of Scripture in a very peculiar way. And I need you to track with me on this one, okay? We read the text of Scripture in a very peculiar way. We often attempt to see ourselves within every story of the Scripture. That's what we do. We're like, hey, where's Nathan at in this story? And we don't just try to read ourselves into the story as a character. We often read ourselves into the story as the main character. And I hope you guys also are aware of this. You also read yourself as the good guy and never the bad guy. It's fascinating how we do this, right? So we're always this main character. And this has led to some very odd interpretations. It's led to odd doctrines. It's led to really odd applications of the scripture. Because of our individualistic renderings, we ask questions that no Bible interpreter in history asked, okay? We ask questions like, well, who's my Goliath? You don't have a Goliath, 
okay? We ask that question because we keep reading our, ourselves into a story. Or like the story of the rich young ruler who has to give up all of his wealth to follow after Jesus. We ask, what's my rich young ruler moment? People just didn't ask these questions in the past. This whole concept reminded me of a, of a coffee mug that I absolutely love. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Anybody who wants to buy it for me, I would greatly accept with joy, right? But here's the beauty of this coffee mug, right? Goliath, and guess who that guy is? Not you, <laughs> right? Stop reading yourself into the story. You're not David. You're not even cool enough to be David, right? Okay? So this is really, really important, right? So this is, this is an individualistic interpretation. It's what we have the habit of doing. Uh, there are several problems, though, that are created with this approach, but the main one is that the original writers lived in a different world. They lived in a community or a collectivist culture, a culture of tribes and a culture of community. Because of this, they wrote in a different way. They wrote to a collective. They wrote to a people, a group of people. It, it's not that they didn't see themselves within the story of God. They did. That's fine. It's also not that they had. Uh, it's also not that they had no framework of individualism. They had a framework for them being individuals. They simply didn't read themselves as the main character of every stinking story that they that they read. Right? All too often, and life proves this out. I need some amens if you know this to be true. Uh, life proves this out. You and I are often just extras in someone else's story. Amen. Right? You ever feel that way? The culture tells us, you're supposed to be great. It's all about greatness. What was I built for and made for? I'm a world changer. That's a common nonsense that gets thrown out there, right? And guess what? Many people get to their 50s and their 60s and they go, darn it, I've not changed anybody's world. <laughs> yeah, because you're an extra. Suck it up. Right? Right? You're an extra. And we are, we are absolutely extras in God's story. Now, that doesn't mean extras are meaningless. That's not the point. Would you, could you imagine watching a movie in which there were no extras in the film? It would be like some sort of dystopian chaos, right? You're like, where'd everybody go? <laughs> right? The main character's walking down the street and there's nobody around. Something feels weird about this. Extras are necessary. We just got to be careful. We're not always the main character. And trust me when I say this principle is going to be hard for us to change because it is taught to us from childhood. You are supposed to be the main character. You're special. You're unique. You're all this. Whatever. It's great. Jesus died for you. This is true, right? But much of life proves out that we are simply extras in the story. So what I want you to take away from this is this. Neither view, collectivist or individualist, is inherently right or wrong. I'm not even making a moral claim about this. I don't care whether you think it's good or bad. I don't think it's good or bad. I just want you to see what the text of Scripture actually says versus us reading our goofiness into it, right? I know for sure that there are times in which seeing things from an individualistic perspective are, are clear, right? The, the biblical writers intended that. I also know that much of the time it's viewed as the community. It's viewed in a corporate lens. So if we read, misread things, our interpretation is necessarily skewed. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples here in a second. If something is meant to be collective, how should we read it, church? 
collectively. If it's individualistic, how should we read it? Individualistically. That's the importance of this. I am not making a moral claim here. I'm not saying Westerners are awful. I'm simply telling you, because I are one, right? I am simply telling you we've got to be careful with how we interpret things. So let me give you a few examples. The first one is this. It's what I call the temple, not temples of God. The temple, not temples of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. These are the words of God. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That feels warm and fuzzy and nice. I'm about to change it on you, right? In English, like many other languages, the term you, the term you can be understood both in a singular fashion and in a plural fashion. But there isn't a formal way to differentiate the two, okay? Of course, we make up words like y'all, or if, you're, if you have any connection with New York, use, right? This is people from the Bronx, maybe, what, whatever. But, but these are just colloquialisms, right? This is just things that we've added so we can communicate this idea. Biblical Greek, however, and Hebrew for that matter, can and does differentiate between you. This is some, uh, something we often miss, and it reinforces the principle that I shared from last week, which is things that go without saying. Things that go without saying. We've got to be careful on that because there are things that we think go without saying that didn't, right? When Paul asked the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He was not speaking to, nor was he stressing individualism. He was not saying, and neither does the Bible anywhere in its pages say, that each of you is an individual temple of the Holy Spirit. If you think that, you're wrong, okay? If we even see the difference between the singulars and the plurals, we'll tend to understand the passage backwards too, right? In the original Greek, the you is plural and temple is singular, but we do the opposite with it, don't we? We think you is singular and the temple is plural. Well, we're reading it wrong, okay? So what is Paul actually saying? All y'all together... Can you say that with me? All y'all together. How about this? All us together. All us together, right? Uh, are forming the singular temple that is God's temple. Contrary to popular belief, you and I as individuals do not constitute little temples. Do we possess the Spirit of God or does He possess us, right? Is He indwelling in us? Yes, but you're still not a temple. You're still not a temple. And why? Because you've read the Bible wrong or been taught the Bible wrong, okay? We all make up one singular dwelling place. Paul reflects on the same idea in Ephesians chapter 2, 21 and 22. And guess what? He keeps his singulars and his plurals exactly in line with what I'm telling you. Jesus, in whom the whole building, being fit together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you, plural, so what do we say? In whom y'all also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Singular. One temple. Peter echoes the same idea in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. And guess what Peter does? He keeps the singulars and the plurals right in line with the truth of Scripture. You, plural, y'all also, as living stones, that's also plural, are being built up as a spiritual house 
singular, one house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, according to Peter, each of us represents bricks in this grand temple structure. As Westerners, though, we assume that the emphasis is on the parts. And listen, we're slightly okay with collectivism as long as the individual part gets recognized, right? right? I'm cool with being a part of y'all as long as you know my name. That's, why, that's how we think, okay? But Peter's audience, Paul's audience, they didn't think this way. They thought with the whole in mind. They thought with the community in mind. Second example is that of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's worth pointing out that even in Eastern cultures, there is a tendency to lean towards individualism. And in this case, stressing this point, in this case, it is viewed as a negative. It's not always viewed as negative, but in this case, it absolutely is viewed as a negative. Concerning spiritual gifts, the Apostle Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, it'll be on the screen. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works, say it with me, church, all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The first thing to take note of in that passage is that God is working all things in all persons. Okay? If we read that individualistically, we might interpret it to say that every gift is for every single person, so each individual is a self-contained body, and therefore, Lone Ranger Christianity. Wrong. Wrong again. Wrong, 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 wrong. And we have to get ourselves out of this framework because we're really screwing things up if we keep reading it this way. The point is instead that God works all things, that is every individual gift, in all y'all, the plural community, or the whole body of Christ. The second idea is that whatever gift is given to an individual, the aim is not for themselves. The aim is for who? The common good. The collective is what matters. And it's hard to focus on individualism if you actually understand that the common good is your goal. We've been taught it's me, 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 me. Right? And listen, listen, I'm, I'm, I am going to get myself in a little bit of trouble. Okay? As Americans, we sucketh at this, okay? King James English there, okay? So we are bad at this. What was the Army's old, uh, old motto when they, uh, advertisement motto just a couple years ago? I guess it's not old. It was, come and be an army of, are you serious? Are you serious? You can't be an army of one. It doesn't work. You die. Right? Yeah, you're not Chuck Norris, you're not Arnold Schwarzenegger, it doesn't work, right? Okay, you can't be an army of one. We are built to think, I, me, mine. Don't tread on me, not us. This was not the way it used to be. Thomas Jefferson once said, we will be soldiers so that our sons can be farmers, so that their sons might be artists. He was thinking generationally. And what do we think today? We might worry about tomorrow, but that's it. It's today. And we're often not thinking about giving an inheritance to our children's children. Right? 
And even when we do think about it, here's what we boil it down to. We boil it down to, well, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. That'll be a good enough inheritance. That's a part of that inheritance. No question. But there is far more to this. We have to break ourselves from this way of thinking when it is bad, when it is inappropriate to think this way. Paul goes on to say this, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. Now look at the series of events that happen next. And to another, the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith. To another, gifts of healing. To another, effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the distinguishing of spirits. To another, various tongues. And to another, interpretation of the tongues. Can't even understand what's going on unless you have each other. But, Paul says, one and the same Spirit works all these things. Things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. There it is, Nathan. It's individualistic. Ah, wait. Listen to what he says next. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and as Paul says elsewhere, whether male or female. And we are all made to drink of one spirit. And I love this piece de resistance, right? He says, for the body is not one member, but many. The body is many. It's a collective. The idea Paul addresses here include the ideas he addresses here, include contentment concerning gifts given, because one of the arguments in the Corinthian church was, I'm a hand, but I wish I was a foot, because it seems like they get better things to do, right? So he says, no, 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 be content with what you've got. Be content with the way God has made you, because you're a part of his story. No, you're not the main character. Suck it up, buttercup. You still play an important role inside of his truth, right? So he deals with that. The second thing that he deals with is a refutation of the notion that one member doesn't need the other. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. It wouldn't get anywhere, right? So we need all of the pieces. Paul would tell us that a person's identity comes not from distinguishing himself or herself from the community, but in knowing and faithfully fulfilling their place. Our God, our goal, sorry, our God, it seems to be our God, our goal uh, should not be to get ahead or move beyond the body. It shouldn't be also to envy others or think less of anyone. The highest goal, church, the virtue of the church in this sort of culture is the support of the whole, the care for the rest around us. As a brief aside, though, it's this getting ahead principle. It's this lording over issue that characterizes, and women, I need you to hear this because I'm admitting something important here, and that is this getting ahead or lording it over is what characterizes so many men in the debate about women in ministry. Amen? It's them trying to push down instead of understanding both are necessary. Both are necessary. And how do I know it? Because the daggone Bible told me so. Right? That's what we're reading in this. Okay, so why does this collectivist interpretation matter, at least here? Let's return to our first example. If you understood 1 Corinthians 
Give, this is practical for you, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to mean that, and this I'm going to put it up, and this is the wrong way. Your singular body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, singular, whom you, singular, have received from God. If you interpret it that way, which is wrong, you'll likely conclude that a good application would be, well, I need to get in shape. I need to take care of my body. I need to make sure that I don't smoke and chew and hang out with girls who do, right? We've got to make sure that we protect everything. Why? Because I'm a temple of God's spirit, right? This, fine, right? Like, take care of yourself. That's great. But guess what? That's not the Bible verse that you need to appeal to. The Bible verse that Mark appealed to in, in 1 Timothy is a more accurate interpretation of that. Taking care of oneself. This is not it because it's read exactly backwards, okay? Uh, so you're going to understand this as, as taking care of the body. If, however, you read it the right way, which is this, and I'll put it on the screen, your plural body is a temple, y'all's body is a temple, singular of the Holy Spirit, who is in y'all, whom y'all have received from God, then you'll understand that Paul's concern has to do with some very important things. And that is the holiness of the church. It has to do with the devotion of the community, which speaks to unity and our image in the world. Jesus told us that we would be known by what? Our love for one another. Yes, that is our fruit. You're right. But it is our fruit that shows a love for one another. But if we're divided constantly, if we're always pitted against each other, if it's always men versus women, if it's always this kind of stuff, denominationalism and all the chaos, we're missing the point, right? We're missing the point, And we are tarnishing the image of God's body in the world. And so what do most uh, atheists or non-believers say? They go, I don't have any need for that, you bunch of hypocrites. Can you guys raise your hands with me? Just like, like you're giving an oath here real quick. Raise your hands real quick. Everybody, Ben Bird included, say, sometimes I'm a hypocrite. I'm glad you admitted it, okay? Sometimes we're hypocrites. Absolutely every one of us is hypocrites. Mark Ryan didn't raise his hand because he thinks he's better than all of us. But it's okay. That proves he's a hypocrite. Anyway, right? So this, this is really important, guys. We are tarnishing the world, uh, tarnishing the image of Christ in the world because we're doing it backward, aren't we? We're doing it backward. So this way of reading the text of Scripture will weigh heavily into the discussion of women in ministry, especially concerning women's value. After all, if they are members of this body, and they are, right? If women are members of this body, and they are, then they are indispensable. And please hear me clearly. One of the arguments that somebody's going to come up with against me on this whole piece is they're going to say, Nathan, I agree with you that women are important, but their place is stay at home and make sandwiches, Right? You're wrong, and you're wrong for a lot of reasons, and I've given them over the past six weeks, but you're wrong on so many fronts because what we're talking about here is their value in the church, not just in the home. Their value is absolutely present today. Your value, women, is present today, and we need it. Can you hear me? Amen. We need it. We absolutely need it. 
So let's go to deacons and their role. Last week, we learned that elders are both mothers and fathers within a community. How many of you remember that? There are two words in, or there's one word in the Hebrew, two for older person, but one that is primarily used, and it is found in both genders. It's found in the, found in the masculine and in the feminine regarding elders. So we have mothers and fathers within a community. But we also saw that in both ancient Israel and in the first century church, there were elders from among elders. What did Nathan mean by that? It meant that there was a set-apart few that were charged with a particular duty. There are elders in this room that are absolutely fathers and mothers here to give wisdom to the church. And then, just like the elders of Israel, 70 were called out of that. Elders from among elders, right? And in the first century church, there were elders inside of a community, wise people to give, uh, to give instruction, to give guidance. And then there were elders among elders. There were people pulled out from this. And their job in both Old Testament and New Testament was to protect and to administer justice for God's flock. That's why they were there, okay? We learned last week that elders from among elders in both of these cases, no matter what we like about it or dislike about it, happen to be men. Now, we can get in all kinds of discussions on whether that's descriptive or whether that's prescriptive, but that is what we see. Elders seem to be older faith, elders from among elders governing the church seem to be older men who have a certain level of qualification, okay? That seems to be that. But what about the role of deacons? It seems very different. Uh, and the role of deacons both within the Bible and the broader culture. In Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 6, uh, we have recorded what many consider to be the first deacons in the church. Uh, this office is unique to the New Testament, by the way. There's no such thing as an Old Testament deacon. The word is diakonos, which is found in both the masculine and feminine forms, and diakonos simply means servant. That's it. There's no official servant and non-official servant. There's just servants in the Bible. Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 6. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, diakonos. Um, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What was the purpose of these men, according to that passage? And by the way, by the way, it's simply a description here, not a prescription, right, of men. So what was their purpose? Just like we learned in Corinth, it was the common good. There were widows who were being overlooked, and so servants were necessary for that particular task, okay? They had a responsibility to take care of. Later in Paul's letter to Timothy, he gives qualifications for a deacon. He kind of expands on this. However, the list of qualifications found in Timothy cannot be, logically, they cannot be an exhaustive list. Why do I say that? Because Acts is giving us a description it also says that two qualifications were be filled with the Holy Spirit and be filled with wisdom. And for some reason, Timothy leaves that off. You see, if it was going beyond a description to a prescription, you'd have to be consistent with this, right? You'd have to be consistent in Acts and in Timothy. But he's not consistent because this is not the whole of everything, right? Here's what Paul says, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be men. Well, there you go, Nathan, it's over. 
No, it's not. They likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now look at what verse 11 says. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Then it goes back. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So verse 11 provides us actually with our first indication that this is an office open to women. Now it shouldn't surprise any of you. Commentators disagree, right? Imagine that. They disagree. Why do they disagree? Because the word women can be translated both ways. It can be translated women or wives. And so some commentators assert that these are the wives of deacons. So I don't even need that to make the case, okay? I don't even need it to say women or wives to make this case. Along with Romans 16, 1 and 2, and what we see in ancient church history, we understand that women were, in fact, deacons. Phoebe uh, is the one that I'm thinking of, and she was a deaconess in Cancrea, uh, and we learn more about this from church history. In the second century, Clement of Alexandria wrote that, quote, and it'll be on the screen, they, women, might be their fellow ministers in they as the apostles, or their fellow ministers, the apostles, in dealing with housewives. It was through them that the Lord's teaching penetrated also the women's quarters without any scandal being aroused. That's a pretty powerful uh, tool to be used so that scandal can be averted. We also know the directions about women deacons. Listen, this is the second century. This is who, who people in the world of the day understood what the people of that world understood the scripture to be saying. That we also know the directions about women deacons which are given by the noble Paul in his letter to Timothy. Likewise, Origen, a contemporary, commenting on Phoebe uh, in Romans 1.16 says this. This text teaches that with the authority of the apostle that even women are instituted deacons in the church. This is the function which was exercised in the church in Cancrea by Phoebe, who was the object of high praise and recommendation by Paul. And thus, this text teaches at the same time two things. That there are, as we have already said, women deacons in the church, and that women who by their good works deserve to be praised by the apostle and ought to be accepted in the diaconate or the, the service of deaconship, right? So how does a collectivist interpretation affect our understanding of elders and deacons or the role of women in ministry? Well, here's the deal. I think you can see that if we are reading the scripture through the collectivist lens, we see a community and not merely individuals and not merely agendas. We see a tribe that actually needs every single part of the tribe to function correctly. It's absolutely amazing to me, church, that in the garden before the fall, God declares to Adam, he says it's not good, or declares about Adam, that it's not good for man to be alone, right? Are you with me today? It's not good for man to be alone, but he needs a help meet, one who is 
one who is uh, suited for the task. And what was the task? Ruling and reigning the world, subduing and multiplying and doing all these things, okay? That was, the, that was the, the task, okay? And it was not good for men to do this alone. It is fascinating to me, what astounds me, is that as the extraordinary task of the church lies before us, some, admittedly, including myself before a deeper look into it, believe that it is good for man to rule the church alone. Just think about that for a second. It's not good for man to be alone. He can't subdue the world by himself. Ah, but now that we're in the church, he can rule it by himself. He doesn't need women. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to me either. And it's not what the scripture actually says. What we do when we constantly fight and defend for this position that says men do the leading, women sit down and shut up. When we continue to fight for this, what we're doing is manifesting the curse. The curse said he's going to rule over you and you're going to want to usurp that authority. And we're going to constantly bicker and fight. All we're doing is proving that the curse is a real thing. But are we a new creation? Come on, church. Are we a new creation? Yes, we're a new creation, which means we are not intended to operate this way. I, I pray that this series has helped show that this is simply not the case. And just, uh, just so we're clear, every member of the body is required for the body to function, right? Absolutely, men and women together. If we refuse and continue to read the Bible through our individualistic lens the one we as Westerners use, we will no doubt continue to lord it over one another. We will continue to assert that one gender happens to be better and more apt for service than others, and what we will do is we will read it into the text, and we will prove it all day long, but we will still be wrong. This is what's going to happen, and this is what is already happening. Okay, last piece. All y'all submit to all y'all. Let's wrap the entire series up with this view, another collectivist view. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Here's what the Word of God says. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How many of you want to know the will of the Lord? Okay, listen up because you're going to find out the will of the Lord. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of Christ Jesus to God, even the Father, and be hupatasso, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. All y'all submit to all y'all. Not me without you, and not you without me. Instead, it's both of us and all for the common good. All of us for the same goal. What follows from verse 22 to the end of the letter provides just an amazing insight into the care for the tribe. And this week, I'm, I'm going to add a, a podcast this week where I just talk about this. Because what we need to understand is all y'all submit to all y'all, then gets explained but the explanation fits everything that I've shared with, the, with you over the past six weeks. It confirms the ideas that we need one another and that our call is actually to lay, it, lay our lives down, not lorded over one another. Okay? So the conclusion of all of this. At the outset of the series, 
we looked at, we looked all the way back to Genesis 2. And we saw that women were consecrated as man's, the King James Version, as man's help meet. In, in English, <laughs> in modern English, one suitable for the task, right? A woman was consecrated for this task. And the task set before him and her were, uh, was to rule and reign. It wasn't good for Adam to do this alone. I just explained it. So God gave him someone suitable. Who was that? It was Eve, right? Throughout the series, we've heard arguments from both sides of this divide. We've seen that despite what some would have us believe, woman is still consecrated for service. She didn't just somewhere drop off, right? Uh Uh-oh, we hit the Reformation. Women are gone. That doesn't make any sense, right? She isn't somehow inferior. Can I get an amen? amen? She's not inferior. She's not an employee. Can I get an amen? And that, better, that was not louder. That was a problem. Can I get an amen? She is not, she is not your employee. She's not, she's not merely a servant, as in the help. Can I get an amen? amen? But instead, she is one suitable for the task. And though the toxic power struggle, which resulted from the fall, still obviously undergirds the conflict and the controversy, of all of this, right, male and female relationships, we have an antidote for it. Can you, can you tell me what that antidote is? No, the antidote is Jesus, but it is submission, which is what he taught us to do. We submit to one another. We follow our Lord's lead. How many of you know that Jesus, I'm about to read it from Philippians, he did not consider with equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. What this communicates is functional submission, not ontological submission. Jesus was not made lower. He subjected himself lower. Women are not made lower than men. Men are not to be made lower than women. We are to submit ourselves, subject ourselves, just as our Lord did. The antidote to all of this is submission. Each one of us is to consider, uh, consider what it means to come under or serve the other. Man to woman, woman to man, brother to brother, sister to sister, all of this is required in our submission. Submission is the individual decision to pursue the collective good. We each have the ability to decide for ourselves if we will lay down our lives for the good of others. Sadly, this debate proves we won't do it. We keep the fight alive because we don't want to submit to one another. As the second Adam's bride, what do I mean by that? Jesus is considered the second Adam in Scripture, and we, who are his bride, would then be the second Eve, right? As the second Adam's bride, we, both male and female, are consecrated to the royal position of the second Eve, the second help meet told you this in week two. It is fascinating and humorous to me that the God of the universe made it, made it, so that the Great Commission was given to who? His bride, a woman, to be taken into the world. That really throws a wrench in everybody's theories, okay? So the spiritual connotation is important. Together, we are being made into a suitable helper for our king. But how can we be a suitable helper for the task? When all we do is wrestle with our individualistic power struggles. How can we do it? Answer, we can't. We can't. 
We need to change our perspective. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house. You know that some in this debate would look at that and go, Women shouldn't be building houses. Women shouldn't be in battle and combat and anything like this. They should be sitting at home, right? Shut up, right? Here's what it says. The wise woman builds her home, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands, right? Listen to what happens. The church has been tearing down her own house over women's roles in the family and in the church for eons of time. Moving forward, the choice is ours to choose wisdom or folly, to build up or to tear down. It's our choice. What are we going to do with it, right? So let's end the conversation where we should and focus not on ourselves. Let's focus on our king. Let's focus on the common good, which means let's focus on each other. Amen? That is the aim. Listen to what Paul says to the Philippians. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Did you see the individual there? Sure, there's a personal interest, but don't look out for it merely, and he goes on, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, we have got to understand that our call is not an ontological submission. Nobody is created lower than the other, but a functional submission that says my aim is to put myself under so that I can learn, so that I can grow, so that we can build, so that we can move forward in every way possible. This is a big deal, is it not, church? This is a big deal. And if it's understood well, we will move forward. Quick question, have you found this series beneficial in the argument, in the ideas? Have you found it beneficial? Have you found it encouraging if you're a, if you're a woman? Have you found it encouraging? Have you found it encouraging if you're a man? Here's what's really awesome, you men. I want you to understand something. Steph, would you stand up? This human being right here, who is absolutely amazing, has been my co-writer the entire time. This woman is a powerhouse when it comes to her brain, when it comes to her mind, and when it comes to her understanding of Scripture. And she is valuable and needs to be understood inside of this debate and this conversation. The whole series is proof that she's not less than anything, right? We together have been building this and working together. What I want is for that to be an example. Thank you. 
That to be an example. She's like, well, can I sit down now? Anyway, for that to be an example of every relationship inside of this church, of every relationship inside of this church, guys, we need each other to be able to move this thing forward. Do we not? And the more we fight against that, the more we're just over here bickering and everybody goes, you guys are weird. You guys are hypocrites. You guys never seem to move forward. You can't ever get anywhere. We need each other, amen? We need each other. It's so important. So Mark and the team are going to come up and they're going to facilitate communion. But here's what I want you guys to be praying through and to be thinking through. I want you to think through first what you feel God's gift is for you. What you have seen God working in you. And what others have seen God work in you. Then I want you to pray through how to use it, okay? And while you're praying through how to use it, I would love to talk to you. Men and women, I want to talk to you. I want to see every member of this body functioning the way God has intended us to function. Amen.